Welcome to the Saints of City Me, a podcast delivering audio love letters to and from the city of New Orleans and our New Orleans Saints. I'm Dan, and as always, I'm joined by one of my best mates, Mike. Uh, we've got a real treat for you today on today's episode. Uh, we've got someone who's got over 40 years' experience in the sport with the NFL. He's coached at college level. He's coached in NFL Europe. He's coaching in the Canadian Football League at the moment. He's had a plethora of Saints players involved in his career, involved in their coaching. I think he's one of the main reasons that a lot of fans in the UK pay attention to when the Grey Cup is, because we know that when that's done, he's going to be on our screens on Sky Sports with Neil Reynolds presenting NFL football on a Sunday. It's our pleasure to welcome Jeff Reinbold to the Saints City Me podcast. Jeff, how are you, sir? I'm great. Who that? Who that? That's yeah, all that. Today. <laughs> uh, it, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on, Jeff. Um, we're, we're very grateful that you found the time to sort of uh, come on the show. That's brilliant for us. It's a pleasure, Mike. It really, really is because you guys are Saints fans. I'm a I'm a Saints fan, but I'm a bigger fan of New Orleans and Louisiana. So it, this is fun. Yeah, we're um, we're going to unfortunately for me and Dan have to touch on the Saints uh, towards the beginning of the show. Let's do the painful bit first and get into the fun. Yeah, let, let's let's get the fun uh, in the second half. Um, obviously, at the moment we're uh, we're not having a great time this year, Jeff. Uh, five and seven. Uh, it seems it seems like a Groundhog Day experience for Saints fans because at the moment, I think for the last four or five games, we've started very slow. I don't think we're capable of chasing teams down properly. What are you seeing from the Saints this year? Well, it's you know again, like I I agree with you. Uh, it's been really frustrating because you're in a or we're in a if you if you view it from the Saints standpoint. Uh, really a not very good division, a weak division <laughs> that really you, you've got a great opportunity. I thought when they brought Derek in, I thought that was going to be mm. the catalyst because I've, I've never been sold on Jameis. And, and, uh, but again, when, when Derek came in, I thought that was going to be the guy that was going to, you know, unleash Michael Thomas, that was going to unleash Olave and was going to, mm create, you know, an, enough of the throwing game that Kamar could be a, you know, the factor that yeah. you know, was when, when Drew was there. It's been frustrating. The defense has been good, but it's not been good enough. And then like, you know, we watched, we watched this past Sunday and I'm, I'm concerned for Dennis Allen's future. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Dennis. I don't, it's not like he's a friend of mine or any of that. I'm just saying that, you know, when you're five and seven in that division and, you know, the offense can't seem to get untracked, and it's been a long, hard slog this year. Now, they're not out of it yet, but because it is a weak division. <laughs> yeah, it's but, awful. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, and, and there's no embarrassment in that, right? I think this is really important to understand that in professional sport, getting to the postseason is everything. And now there will be teams with better records than anybody in the South has but they're not going to go to the playoffs, but, but you can't yeah. blame, you can't blame the teams in the South for that. You can only be in the division that you're in and you can only play the schedule that you're given. So that, you know, you got to, you know, tuck your ears in and forget about all that noise and just try and get a W every weekend. And I think it's really, really important for them because Atlanta is not foolproof. Atlanta is not, you know, bulletproof. Mm. I think the saints, if they can get hot at the right time, and put four straight together that you know they might limp into the playoffs. Now they won't be yeah. in the playoffs, 
playoffs very long, but as <laughs> wouldn't you love to see him just play one more time? Yeah, I think Dallas at home that'd be that'd be a great great one for the for the city. Everyone everyone looks at it and thinks, can we be the New York Giants? Don't they? You perform poorly and get into playoffs, and anything can happen. But it's difficult when you've haven't beaten a winning team of a winning record yet this season, yeah. which is is trouble. Well, there's a team. There's a team over in South Florida that's got a pretty gaudy record, and they haven't done much better than that either in terms of, <laughs> terms of yeah. winning record. So you know, there you can create your own narrative however you want to yeah. spin it. And I'm sure for, and I just would say this because I've been on teams that were had losing records and got to the playoffs. It doesn't matter because when you put your hand in the dirt, you know, in a playoff game, you're there for a reason. You were there because you, you were the best team in your division and that makes you worthy. And then you've got 60 minutes to try and figure out a way to get to the, mm -hmm. you know, more week of, of football. I think we saw this weekend that the players are still playing for each other for sure that that second half against the lions they definitely they the players haven't lost each other whether the the coaches have lost the players is probably a different different matter but they're still playing for each other and that's the noise that's coming out the locker room from all the players is we're on the same page so like you say jeff if they get to playoffs and they've got that kind of mentality maybe anything can happen but we'd, we'd have to wait and see and a bit of a wing and a prayer but yeah, I mean, yeah. you got to remember now, guys. That's an eight. That's an eight-win team that they battled this past weekend, and yeah, and they yeah. got down early, and they had every reason in the world to shut it down. They had every reason in the world to fold their tent and just say, "Okay, you know, we're going to get out of here," and you know, but they didn't. They came back and battled, and you know, again, lost your quarterback, and still came came out fighting. And I think that yeah. speaks an awful lot about what you're talking about. Those players yeah. obviously care about one another. And I, I, I'm i not in the locker room, so I can't – I'm just telling you that's the barometer that I see, that I use when I'm looking at a team play. They've got some good leadership on that football team. Yeah, got, absolutely. Even on the defensive side of the ball, they've got some guys that have been through the – you know, been through the ringer, and they know what's up. And uh, they just got to execute a little bit better and obviously – I don't know. I haven't seen the injury report yet. I don't know what Derek's situation is long term, but you know, he gives them the best chance to win. Yeah, I think, I think uh, rib, ribbed in a concussion protocol. I think. Yeah, I think it's his. I was going to say, Dan. I think it's his second concussion in three weeks. You get the feeling that they may have to sort of maybe not play him this week <clears throat> for his own benefit, if if, if nothing else. Um, it's it's funny because obviously we're very in tune with the Saints fans over there, and that. Obviously, they're not happy. Um, and I think part of it is they're not happy with what appears to be the coaching. And therein lies part of the problem because you you touched on it, Jeff, and so did Dan, that the players still seem like they've got that fight because we've had quite a few games recently where we've gone down uh, by fairly large scores, but the players seem to try and drag themselves back into it. I saw a question that I've got asked, which is a more technical question, is in the last four or five weeks, We've it's almost like defensively in the first half of games, we've been really, really poor. So as two guys who are sort of not so okay with like the technical aspects of the game, obviously they make adjustments at half time and it comes out and it's a lot better, and that allows the offense maybe then to sort of come back into the games. Just can you explain to us from from that sort of coaching point of view? 
why that can keep happening week after week where you sort of come out the traps almost not ready well there's a you know there's a number of reasons that can create that you know energy void in your team if you want to look at it that way i think it's important to understand defensively you know they've got an aggressive group you know you look at from back to front from matthew all the way up front they they are an aggressive by nature group of players and um i think that if if i was i don't know consulting there i would say we need to be more aggressive in the first part of the game. We need to go after people a little bit more and force the issue and, you know, let our dogs hunt a little bit, you know, and it yeah. doesn't seem like that's a part of what they're doing. And then, you know, they get, you know, backed in a corner and they, and then they strike back. But like I say, I mean, I've known Tyran Matthew since he was a high school kid. And one of the things that, separates him and one of the things that elevates him and makes him the the player that he is is his hyper competitive nature and he wants to be around the ball and he wants to blitz and he wants to do things to affect the game and sometimes you know you got to think more about players and less about plays yeah i mean yeah, it's 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 frustrating. It, it's one of those things, Jeff. It, Jeff, it just keeps it seems to keep happening week after week. So as a fan, you obviously get frustrated because you're not putting yourself in the best position to win. Um, and as we were saying, the players have seem to still be bought into each other, and they're they're making an effort to come back. We just give us to, we're just giving ourselves too much to do in the second half to actually get those wins. So we'll we'll have to see we'll have to see how it goes. I think. I think Dan, I think we'll be happy to move on from the Saints, won't we? <laughs> I, I did have one one question that I want to ask Jeff, because obviously Jeff, you've done a lot of work as a special teams coordinator. I know you're a special teams coordinator now in mm -hmm. uh, for, up at Hamilton. What do you think of this uh where the Saints have got this Australian punter and he and they like the fact that he does a different type of punting uh to what is standard in the NFL? Is that something you've come across before with like this different type of punting that they're looking at the punter doing? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you know, football is such a streaky, cyclical game, right? I mean, you know, and, and I had this discussion with Tom Morstead actually just this summer because in our league, we've got an uh, initiative just like the NFL to get global players playing. Well, the easiest place to find global players is go down to Australia and get a bunch of punters and kickers. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's all the rage right now and all of the different kind of kicks they can do and all of it. I'm not sure how much that is really important. It's important in college football and it's more important in the CFL than it is in the NFL. Cause we don't fair catch balls in our league. You can't. Yeah. Right. But in the national football league, and I think Thomas has proven this out, you know, as you watch him continue you know, to be in the game and punting at a high level, if you can get the ball up in the air and you can force a fair catch, the only punting stat that's really valid, in my opinion, is net punting, right? Yeah. And, you know, when you when you can take the return, take a great returner out of the game because you hang the ball up so high, he has to fair catch it. Those are big, big plays. And in addition to, you know, punts down inside the 10 and all of it. But, you know, again, everybody – once right now and i was on a conference call it's an interesting topic because i was on a conference call there's a group of 
guys down in Australia that have really done a great job of finding these guys, crossing them over from Australian rules, rules football and teaching them how to punt and kick. And, you know, when one guy, when one place gets one, then everybody else says, oh, I got to have one of those too. And I asked, I asked Thomas, I said, Thomas, do you, do you ever, have you fooled around, you know, with, you know, the banana kick and all the other stuff that those guys do. And he said, Jeff, he said, I believe that I have, I have been doing what I do so well for so long. Why would I ever try and do something just because it's a fad? And I think yep. that's, I think this is really kind of a fad because the, you know, I, I'll go back on this one all the way back to NFL Europe in 1995, there was an Australian kid uh, that the Chargers had sent to our league, and he ended up going back to the NFL and being a Pro Bowl punter. But he was he was a, I mean, he was a prototypical NFL punter. He was a big, strong guy yeah. that could hit it up there, up you know, and bring rain with it. And um, he wasn't doing all the rollouts and the you know, the banana kicks and that hitting the top end of the ball and all of it. Um, I think, I think it's going to be a fad that we'll kind of go through and live through. And then, you know, it'll go, it'll go by its, by the wayside. Yeah. I think on the subject of, uh, of Thomas Morstead, I think that there's not one individual in the city of New Orleans who didn't mourn the day that he left. I'm still uh, mourning. I'm still yeah, mourning. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a yeah. shirt in my over there. I, I miss him every game. He, he's he yeah. went. To, they let him go too soon. He was he was still at his peak now. You know yeah, what? That was a really, really, really tough time for a lot of people. And I, I had Thomas on my on my podcast right after that happened. And you know he he's built a home out in Colorado, but he still calls New Orleans home. Yeah. And, uh, he and the kids were out there and you could you could sense the disappointment and the emotion in his voice because when he left SMU and went to New Orleans he didn't go halfway he invested and yeah. he you know he burrowed in in New Orleans and that he still considered that home and as a matter of fact and I think this is the most beautiful thing even though he's putting for the Jets his kids still root for the Saints yeah. And they don't they don't wear Jets gear on they don't wear Jets gear <laughs> on Monday. They wear they wear Saints black and gold, baby. And that's just the way it is because they're New Orleans kids. Yeah. yeah and I it's saw, that thing. It, 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 yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say he he was he so obviously loved the city and the city really loved him back. And they still do to this day. Yeah. Um you know, it it's it, it was a bit of a travesty when he left, but you know, obviously. You know, you tried younger things. and cheaper, but fellas, younger and cheaper. Eh? Yeah, 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 yeah. Younger, and they always want to get one cheaper. Exactly. I, I used to joke that they uh, they tried to succession plan for replacing Thomas more than they did for Drew Brees because they obviously stashed <laughs> yeah. the young punter on the on the injured reserve list for a year. Um, but then Drew Brees is like, just let him go and not not really have a plan for it. But anyway, I'm, I'm too bitter about Thomas going. <laughs> go on, Mike, carry on. <laughs> No, it, so we, we sort of we've touched on the Saints there, Jeff, and it, I think more we we were sort of saying we'd like to just get a real understanding of of yourself and how you got into your coaching career and the journey mm -hmm. you've been on. So, 
I mean, how did how did coaching sort of come around for you? Because I know you, I think I've heard you say before that your family wasn't a football family, so there wasn't a, a history of that sort of uh, in your life. I think I think your father was maybe a, was he a baseball coach? I believe. Yeah, my dad was in baseball. He, my yeah. dad, went to went to school in Mississippi and played both baseball and and basketball in college, and then went you know went through a long series it just he got a huge break when he was well past you know a young coach and was a high school coach and happened to this is a crazy story but he's speaking at a banquet and uh one of the people on the dais with him on that banquet was a guy named charlie o'finley who was uh, the owner of the oakland days and mr finley apparently was taken by my father's presentation or whatever and we were sitting around the kitchen table, five kids and my mom and dad, and we're sitting around the kitchen table having dinner. And we had a strict rule in our house, no phone calls at dinner, none, right? And the phone rang and my mom just happened to be walking to the table and grabbed it off the wall. That was back in the days when they, yeah, were, yeah. they were on the wall. <laughs> do and, you remember those days, Jeff? <laughs> I do. And I remember, yeah. her, I remember her going and saying hello. And she said, yes, he is. And she put her hand on the phone and she said, um, Jim, it's Charlie Finley. And she didn't know who the Oakland, o Oakland A's yeah. owner was. I mean, and, and he goes, stop. And she, he goes, she goes, no, it, he says his name is Charlie Finley. Anyway, he thought it was a friend of his breaking his chops, right? <laughs> so he finally gets on the phone and he, and he gets the phone and he goes, hey, listen, I'm, I'm eating dinner with my family. I'll call you back. <laughs> now, <laughs> he realizes that this is the owner of the Oakland A's on the phone with him. And that little kind of, in you know, encounter started him on a career of the last, oh, last 50 years of his life, 40 years of his life. Certainly, um, he was in professional baseball. So we bounced all over the place. And then um, when I went to... Uh, when I was just about to get to high school, my mom said to my dad, hey, you can do that baseball thing all you want. But these kids need a place to call home. And mm -hmm. so we moved to South Bend, Indiana. And, uh, you know, we were so close to Notre Dame Stadium that you could hear the crowd on Saturday mornings. Right. And so we would go out as little street rats and we'd be out playing touch football, pack, pick up football in the street. And then the crowd would roar and we'd all pretend like we were playing. At <laughs> yeah. So it was a really cool way to grow up as a kid. And, you know, I'll tell you this little bit of how it's New Orleans always seems to find its way into my life because uh, because we had five kids and not much money, uh, a big entertainment in the fall after my dad had come home from, you know, summer of coaching baseball was – he would pile us all in the station wagon and we'd go to the little root beer stand and buy a 20, everybody got a 25 cent root beer and we'd drive around and listen on the car radio to WWL New Orleans and they would do LSU football games. And I remember just the, she, like the sound of mm. seven at that point, at that time, 75,000 people in Tiger Stadium. Yeah when LSU would score and you couldn't, he, the, the announcer would be screaming into the, into the microphone and you couldn't hear him. 
right? So long story short, I'm at Louisiana Tech, and we're going to play LSU, right? And it's LSU's homecoming. So I I asked the co- head coach, I said, can I, can I have my parents stay at the hotel, and I'd like to have them have the opportunity to ride the bus into Baton Rouge and be in the stadium for the game? He said, no problem. <laughs> so you guys know Louisiana, so you know you know what I'm talking about. We we get in the bus. We're, we're staying at the hotel in Baton Rouge, and you had to cross the river, and you had to go through these little tiny-ass streets in Baton Rouge. And we're rolling. The buses are rolling through these streets. And all of a sudden, and, you know, they start drinking on Thursday for a Saturday. Not <laughs> <laughs> well, wrong. So, so we're we're rolling through these narrow streets, and all of a sudden, all these LSU fans recognize it's our bus, right? And there's they're pushing the bus, so the bus is swaying back and forth, right? They're and they're yelling "Tiger bait, Tiger bait, Tiger bait!" <laughs> and we we get up to the stadium, and we got to go through this dark tunnel to get to our locker room. Well, LSU, as you guys know, is the Tigers, and they got this live, and I mean real live, 800-pound <laughs> Bengal Tiger named Mike, right? And so we got all these kids from Louisiana Tech that are just intimidated anyway because they're going to go play in the SEC against against LSU. And the, the, we're walking down this narrow hallway in Tiger Stadium, and all of a sudden when we get to the door of the locker room, they take baseball bats and start beating beating on Mike's cage. And so Mike goes, and I mean to tell you, we had about six, we had about six guys have to have to mop out their pants because <laughs> <laughs> and, and but anyway, so I mean it's just like Louisiana and New is such a special place, and New Orleans is the most special place in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. That, I was yeah, gonna say just, that, um, that wasn't just any LSU team, if was it? It was Nick Saban's 2000. And, uh, it was his championship team. They had Andrew, yeah, Andrew so Whitworth at, at Jeffrey left. Henderson, who played for the Saints. Yeah. Randall yep. Gay was on that team as well. Yeah. Good, yeah. Good, they, good I'll tell you what, they were good. And, um, you know, that, that, was, that was a fun night because <laughs> you, you go in there and there's, like I said, it is a – zoo i mean it is it's so what a great environment and all of a sudden at the far end we're out warming up and all of it at the far end of the stadium in the tunnel you start to see these yellow helmets right and the people at our end see the helmets too so all of a sudden this you know like in at one a voice starts to come out of that stadium and they come out on the field and i remember turning to the head coach and saying hey don't look down there <laughs> they, were, they were a lot different looking than we were i'll tell you that <laughs> so and how would how did your parents find it well you- I, I i i will tell you the story and i told this the other day in the, in a show we did in manchester but so my mom and dad are riding on the bus with me and the bus is swaying back and forth my mother's 70 years old this time right and, and she's a sweet little woman like yeah, and my dad's kind of half-ass enjoying that, I think, because you know he's, <laughs> he's he's a guy. And anyway, so I t- I tell my mom, I said, "Mom, wait, I'll 
we'll get off the bus last, right? And so I'm, I was hoping that kind of, because they surround your bus, man. I mean, they surround your bus, right? And so I, my mom gets up and I get, you know, let her pass. And then she, she's walking out and down the three steps of the bus to go into the game. And this woman who's older than my mother, my mother, like I said, was 70 at that time, jumps out and right in front of my mom, kind of like half squats down and gives my mother the one finger salute and says, we going to kick your ass. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds like Louisiana. <laughs> my mother was totally mortified. Like, <laughs> Blimey. That's brilliant. So, so obviously, you, you, your dad being the baseball court, were you always sort of then sort of surrounded by a sports environment? Obviously, not yeah, maybe I mean, football, it, but yeah. And you know, Mike, I, I went to college to play two sports. I went to play both baseball and, and and football. And looking back on it now, I probably was a better baseball player than I was a football player. But football was my real passion, and I can remember my freshman year and the place where I went to school had been in the final four of the of what they call the College World Series the year before. I mean, it was a good baseball program. Yeah. And so we're indoors in the indoor batting cages and I'm watching the football players walk through the walk through the field house to go out to for spring ball. And I just remember thinking I should be with those guys, you know. Mm. As much as as much as I love football, I realized that, you know, um, if and especially because I, I was going to be it would have been really difficult for me to be a two sport kid in college because you you got to college football now is so much. Of, it's a year round deal. It's not just yeah. you know 13 games in the fall. It's, you know, winter conditioning, this, you know, off season program, spring ball, all of it. And I really needed all of that. And so I made a decision after my first year. I played baseball the first year and then the second year I'm just concentrating on football. What was your um, what was your sort of college football career like? Were you, was there any success in there or not? <laughs> I think I that kept, might answer it. <laughs> I, kept, I kept the surgeon in business. I know that. <laughs> I did. I did read an interview with you, Jeff. Actually, where you said about when you got into coaching, you basically like ruptured your bicep or something like that, and your, your coach says you got like. Oh yeah, well, I, I, that was my that was my senior year, and you know I was so clueless, right? Like I, I was like a lot of kids are even to this day, but I was probably even more so. That was back before there was any ADD or ADHD or anything. I was ADD triple D. And, uh, <laughs> but I love to play. And I thought yeah. in my own simple way, I thought, you know, you're just going to always play. You just go from high school to college and college, you go on play after college. And I had, I had torn my bicep and, uh, they allowed me to play. Uh, they said, you can have surgery at the end of the season. Go ahead and play. And so they they take me up. And I, I remember walking to the locker room one day, and I'm passing the head coach's office, a guy named Jack Picknell, whose son Jackie was the head coach at Louisiana Tech when, when I was there. Uh, and he, he said, Jeffrey, get in here. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. Right. Like, <laughs> the only person that ever called me Jeffrey ever was my mother, <laughs> usually when yeah. she was with me. So I walked in and, and he looked at me. He said, sit down. I, I sat down and I said, what's up, Jack? And he said, he said, what are you going to do when this is over? And I'm like, huh? Over. 
What do you mean over? He goes, Jeff, you got six more games left to play, and that's going to be the end of your career. What do you want to do? And I, to be honest with you, I went to college because of a guy named Jerry DiNardo. And Jerry was an All-American guard at Notre Dame and was a student teacher at my high school when I was a junior. Then he went to, to the University of Maine as a graduate assistant. He ended up, interesting story, Jerry ended up being the head coach at LSU and won an SEC championship at LSU. So I'm telling you, my, my, my Louisiana roots are deep. <laughs> Yeah, but, your links um, are everywhere. Well, and then I went there because of him, right? Mm. And uh, so, you know, he he has always been real helpful to me along the way in my career. And he was the one that really got me started. Jack gave me the idea. Jerry was the one that put the wheels in motion. I was going to say, when you talk about those Louisiana links, I was just going to, a tenuous link, someone who spent some time down at the Saints this summer, um, and if I'm trusting Wikipedia, went to your <laughs> high school, uh, John Gruden. Is that right? John Gruden and I used to work out in the summer, right? Because <laughs> Johnny was, when I was going to college, My, I think it was my, after my senior year, I was going to college. John was a rising sophomore, and um, his dad Jim had been, or what that time was the running back coach at Notre Dame. And so Johnny would throw the ball and we'd work out together in the summer. And uh, it's funny, you know, John has been John since I've known him. I mean, he, all there's no, there's not a, there's not a phony bone in his body. He is exactly who he is. And, you know, again, I, I've, I really have enjoyed watching him succeed. I've hurt for him when he went through the stuff that he went mm. through at the Raiders. But I think, and I would not be surprised at all if this year you don't see him kind of resurface somewhere in the National Football League. Yeah, we, we've sort of talked about potentially whether he would turn up at the Saints as a consultant if they did something with, uh, I've got another tenuous link for you, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> either side of your 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 time at Louisiana Tech, there were two Carmichaels. Uh, yeah, Pete Carmichael Jr. was the quarterback coach, and then his dad came after after you. So we um, a tenuous link again, but um, you we your tenuous link, we, Dan. I don't know. Okay, we, so we this is this is how untenuous that link is. <laughs> Jack Bicknell, the father of the Jackie, who was the head coach at Louisiana Tech, and brought Peter to uh, LA, uh, Louisiana Tech. Pete Carmichael Sr. was an assistant at Boston College with Jack. Jack got the main job, and then Pete got, Pete Carmichael Sr. got to be the head coach at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy in New York. And my senior year, our first game, they those two guys worked it out that, because Pete was trying to grow the program at Merchant Marine. And Jack said, well, we'll come down and, you know, we're a Division One team. He said, we'll come down and play you at your place to, you know, kind of boost your program. So that association goes way, way back. There, it's it's interesting. When you start this, – this coaching thing is you start peeling back the it's layers. Trees, the you peel them back, yeah, and start trimming yeah, them to see yeah. what's there. There's a link, sir. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's and then, really fascinating. Like I said, that Paul Boudreaux, 
who was our offensive line coach my first two years in college, ended up going, left us, went to went to uh, Edmonton in the CFL. Then Jim Mora hired him in New Orleans, and he was he was the offensive line coach on all, all those really good Mora teams in New Orleans. These links are everywhere. I can't keep up, Jeff. <laughs> well, it's, you know, especially when you've done it as long as I have, you, yeah. you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a coaching tree you develop. It's a coaching forest. You got, yeah, you yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. On the um, sort of on on the coaching side of things, um, it's probably going to sound like a really awful question, but when were you happiest coaching? Where, where was the period of time where it sort of everything was falling into place for you? Uh, I think there's there's a number of times. First of all, I would say this, that I don't know if I've ever had a truly bad experience in mm. this business. I'm, I've been fired. I've been we've lost games. I, I all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. But in terms of coaching has always been to me, Mike, it, it's about relationships and it, particularly yeah. about the relationship you have with the players. Um, and so from the very first season I coached, which was at a school that was at, we had 800 students in it. College football program had 800 students at the university at Western, Western Montana. And we went, oh, eight and one. Right. And you learn, you learn real fast how to be a, <laughs> how to be a recruiter because when I would go out and see kids after that season, they, they say, Hey coach, how, how'd you guys do last year? And I go, oh, eight and one. <laughs> oh, lion! I, no, I just emphasized it too. <laughs> See, Mike, that's why Jeff was voted one of the top twenty recruits yeah. in the country by Rivals.com because that kind of attitude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. But, but you know, I think the biggest, the one that meant the most to me was having the opportunity to work for June at uh, Hawaii because. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hawaii is my home. It's where I've always, my heart's always been there. Uh, and to, for us to go to a new year's day bowl and play Georgia in the sugar bowl in new Orleans yeah. with yeah. an undefeated team that beat Purdue, beat Washington, beat Boise state. Beat, I mean, that was an, um, that was a, that was one of those seasons that was magical. And yeah. You know, and then again, like I say, to go to New Orleans and play in the Sugar Bowl against the University of Georgia and Matt Stafford at yeah. quarterback on the other team. I mean, those are those are the kind of things that, you know, you dream you do one day. Yeah, yeah. They're huge accomplishments, aren't they? And obviously, quite rightly, very proud of those. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know what I'm, pr- you know what I'm proudest about, Mike, is that, that um, still to this day, whether it's the first team that I ever coached or the last year's team, um, you still have a relationship with people and the player, particularly the players. Like, you know, because like Coach Vermeils, who's the most important guy I've ever had in my life next to my dad, most important male in my life next to my dad, um, he taught me real early in coaching that, players don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that really, really is true because they live in a world of complete uncertainty. Now it's changing a little bit now because of guaranteed contracts and all that, but still you're, you're in an environment where it's so pressure driven and it's so high, you know, high, high performance oriented that 
guys come and go in an instant. It's like yeah. the only thing I can kind of compare it to is my brothers. I have two brothers who were special forces guys in the military. Yeah. And they talked about, you know, being in a war zone and how somebody that's you've grown really, really close with in one minute can be gone mm. and you have to go on and you have to do your job. And that's the world that professional athletes live in. Mm. I think yeah, and you, you can definitely see that in the the way that, sorry, Mike. Um, no, go on, mate. To say now you've got like these pass rush schools and tight end academies where they're all pulling together the players to make sure they're almost like trying to pull each other up and make sure that they've got the, they're equipped with the, the skills to carry on their careers within the NFL and no one sort of gets left behind for one of a poor phrase to use when obviously no, I mean, the Daniel, you're exactly right. You know, uh, one of my ex players is a guy named Maurice Kelly and Maurice came out of East Tennessee state. He was just a country kid from, you know, from, somewhere in South Carolina. I can't even remember Orangeburg, South Carolina. And, you know, I had him as a rookie and he was like as green as grass. I mean, he didn't know if a football had air feathers in it, but he was a great kid and he had a lot of athletic ability. He ended up going to the, to the Seattle Seahawks and played there. And then he's now the vice president of the Seattle Seahawks. And his job is to, he said to me, he came over and visited us in Hawaii last year. And he, I said, Mo, describe your job to me. And he goes, well, my job is from the minute we sign him or draft him to begin the process of creating a life after football for him. Because mm-hmm. for too many years, the league just casted him away. And then it was, you're, you know, you're on your own. And, you know, you got to understand these guys grow up different than everybody else right i mean you can say that they're entitled and all of this and yeah that's probably true right but the reality of it is they're put in a situation that they're not in any way shape or form ready for and then all of a sudden one day you go in and they say we don't want you anymore and now what has been see here's the difference to me and and, and this is i'm not being disrespectful i'm just trying to paint a picture if somebody works for a major corporation, they probably didn't grow up dreaming of working for that major corporation. But when you, when you, from every, from the first time you, people noticed you as an athlete, as a six or seven year old kid, and then everything was about being there and playing that game and being a pro and then all of a sudden at 23, 5, 6, 7, 30, it doesn't matter. They say, you're done. Yeah. How do you adjust yeah. that? I mean, you got yeah. 40, 50 years left to live. And, and the, it's, thing, yeah. the thing that and it's you, that thing you were saying, it's like for that, for those formative years where you're growing up, it, it's that defines you as a person. That's who you are. So that's who they believe they are. That's all they know. So it must be incredible to then have to try and come out of that and then almost just get on with your life, which might sound, you know, I might sound like I'm blowing it, blowing it out of proportion. But if that's no. all you know, and then suddenly you're left alone to cope, it, it must be incredible. High school players as well, they struggle like the Friday night lights and then they don't go to college and all of a sudden it's like, what do I do? I thought I was going to be a footballer. 
because yeah, they, the, yeah, especially someone like Texas, the adulation they they give to their high school players is like really difficult. I suppose, imagine to, mm. to process that. Yeah, and and so we have a responsibility to players, and I think this new generation of coaches kind of gets it better than the ones that coached me. But I think we have a real responsibility to the players that we coach to begin that process for them emotionally as we yeah. work with them and to, to, you know, to be honest and, and, you know, cause most of the time, the people that have helped them along the way, haven't been particularly honest with them in my experience because mm. you know kids are kids and everybody wants to hear what they want to hear well if somebody's going to tell you what you don't want to hear and 50 other people are going to tell you what you want to hear who are you going to listen to yeah you know That's and so so you know it's not it's not their fault it's just the way it works out and so when they come to us you know it's it's in it's really our responsibility to help them in that transition from the minute we start to work with them because now the clock is really ticking because yeah. when you get to the pro level, it's so competitive and there's so many guys that want to do it. And there's so little athletic separation between the ones that are and the ones that aren't. And that, you know, so it's our responsibility to try and help them through that. Yeah. Also it must, um, it, it must, as a coach, it must take a toll on you anyway, because I'm sure in quite a lot of these cases, you become a very, almost like a paternal figure in their life. So that from an emotional side is sort of, you know, from the player themselves and from a coach, it, 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 you know, that must be, that must be very difficult for coaches to deal with as well, because as you're saying, a lot of these young kids will be, for want of a better expression, cast aside at some point but you've built up a relationship with them. Yeah. I, I'm going to use a Mike Tillinism here and, and I'm going to say that, you know, coach, coach Vermeil taught me not to run from that, but to run to that and mm -hmm. to embrace the opportunity that you have to impact them and help them in that transition period. Yeah. And, um, you know, the hardest, <laughs> the hardest thing for young athletes to hear is the truth. But, you know, I and, I and I do this first meeting. I said, guys, I will I will be one thing I can guarantee you. I said, I'll be demanding. The second thing I'll guarantee you is I will always tell you the truth. Now, if you don't want to hear it, that's your choice. But it, I can save you a lot of pain if you'll listen and understand I'm not attacking you. I'm attacking a behavior or, you know, whatever. And, you know, the only reason I am demanding is because I want to see you succeed. I mean, really, I'm I'm coaching now at this point in my life. I'm coaching now because I want to, because I love yeah. it and enjoy yeah. it. I don't need to. I don't, you know. Yeah. And so this is the best time of my coaching life. Yeah. Jeff, I was going to ask you about recruiting. Do you, when you're recruiting, do you have to change your tact if you're recruiting a kid from New Orleans compared to if you're recruiting a kid from rural South Carolina? Is is there a different approach to it or do you just 
they all they all want the same thing. All right, story time. I, I he, this is so much fun because these stories are all up. So I'm I'm uh, in Philadelphia and I go to the Eagles facility to see Jeff Fisher, who would later go on to be the head coach of the Titans and the Rams and all that stuff. Mm. Well, Jeff is about four or five years older than me, and he was coaching the same position I was coaching at the time. So I go up to the Eagles, and uh, they got a big glass partition at the at the door and i'm standing there and i and and i see buddy ryan who's the head coach of the eagles and a, a like a legendary legendary sarcastic guy right so he's standing over in the corner smoking his pipe and he's watching this interaction between me and the secretary and so i said you know my name is jeff ryan but i'm here to see jeff fisher you know um and Buddy kind of walks over to the window and, and he goes, uh, he, you, and I had an earring in my ear. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is 1980, I don't know what it was, some, somewhere in the 80s, right? Yeah. And I had long hair and I had an earring in my ear. And, and uh, he goes, what do you do? And I said, <laughs> I'm a coach. And he goes, they let you wear that earring? And I said, yeah, coach, some of the places I recruit, it gets me in the door. And he looked, he puffed on his, puffed on his pipe one time. He goes, like that. And he goes, when you get in the door, what do you do? Kiss him? Sorry, sorry, Jeff, just, just to go back uh, two seconds. We really need to dig out a picture of you with your long hair and your earring, though. That would be. Oh, they're I'm sure they are. I'm yeah, sure we're going to find, gonna find I'm it. Sure, I'm sure you can we, find one somewhere. But anyway, yeah. so, but your your point is is right. Now, wh what I've found over time and in, in recruiting a lot of really, really, really good players is the first thing the players want is they want somebody who's genuine. Whatever you are, be who you are. Right. The second thing is um, the best recruiters I've ever been around, guys, are the best listeners, because somewhere in conversation, that player or that parent or that girlfriend or that coach or that equipment man or that whoever, if you listen, they're going to give you the keys to the castle. Right. Case in point, I'm recruiting Michael Bennett. All right. And Michael Bennett would go on and be a Pro Bowl player for the Seahawks, a Super Bowl champion and all of that. And I'm I'm at Louisiana Tech and I go to A-Leaf Taylor High School in Houston. And the coach says, I want you to look at this defensive lineman I got. And Michael at that time was about 6'3 and about 230 pounds. Wasn't a real big guy, but great athlete. Great. You, you could tell he was special. So I start recruiting him. And uh you know, the thing that Michael did was the best thing Michael did in the, my recruitment of Michael was introduce me to his girlfriend. Right. And Pele, who's now his wife. Right. I mean, they were high school sweethearts. She's now his yeah. wife. She's got five kids or whatever they got. Well, Pele was Hawaiian and her mom and dad had moved to Houston and she was homesick as ever. Yeah. And because I could speak her language, I could, you know, 
I, it, it were like we were friends, right? Yeah. And the biggest thing about recruiting is you got to find who the decision makers are, right? <laughs> and sometimes it's the dad, sometimes it's the mom, sometimes it's the coach. But in Michael's case, it was Pele because they were really, really close to one another. And, and it was kind of a weird 17-year-old relationship because they were like an old, I mean, they were like a couple. Yeah, yeah. And so I knew if I could get her on board, then she would be in Michael's ear all the time. And what happens is sometimes when you go in recruiting, you go in there and you seem like you're in a hurry and you only got, you got to get to the next school and da, 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 da. And so you give this kid this speech and this, you know, spiel, but you never listen. And then you're out the door and then you go. And when we, when we signed Michael, people were like, how in the hell did you sign Michael Bennett? Right. Well, because I want his girlfriend over. And then yeah. Pele every day was saying, well, what did the coach from Louisiana Tech say? What did the, 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 you know? And so, you know, that's to me, the secret in recruiting is being a good listener, not a good talker. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that, that's that's sort of quite revealing, isn't it? But also, as you say, probably in life, that's something that, that people should more often do. Well, yeah, if you want me to change jobs, convince my wife. <laughs> yeah, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you another one. I recruited a kid named Ryan Mouton who ended up playing in the NFL for the for uh, for the for the Titans and for the Redskins, and he had committed to the University of Utah. And I convinced him to come on a visit to uh, to Hawaii. And during the course of our conversations, right, he let it be known to me that he really liked. Asian girls, right? Wow, well, it's unfair now. Who are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> <You're just cheating. laughs> and so he came on his visit, flipped, and came to us, played, and was a great player for us, and then played in the NFL. He's still a very, very, very good friend of mine. That's so you, um, you talk about a player flipping there. I just wanted to. I've got a whole raft of players here that you've coached, you played for the Saints, and there's more that connections you've you've talked to us talked to us about. Chris Banjo, um, mm-hmm. he's currently working with Sean Payton at the um at the Broncos. He was gonna come to Hawaii with you. Mm-hmm. You leave Hawaii and go to SMU, Southern Methodist, and then he goes to SMU. Is that and just another example of good recruitment and the, the player is in on the coaching staff, not so much as the the team? Um yeah, he was a, he was a, he was an interesting kid because Chris uh, went to Kempner High School in suburban Houston, and I actually went to the school to see another kid who played safety at Kempner, a guy named George Iloka, who ended up playing in the NFL for the Bengals and a couple teams. And but when I was there and I'm watching the film of Iloka, who was really what you wanted. He was a 6'2", 215-pound kid that could run. I mean, he had all the length and all the all the measurables and everything. But the other safety on the film, who was 5'11 and 195 pounds, but just played like so hard. I mean, like mm. so hard. So I asked the coach, his high school coach, I said, who's, who's the other one, right? And I said, we're going to offer a loca, but I really like the other one. And... um 
He said, that's Chris Banjo. So we recruited Chris. He committed. He came on a visit in December while we were still at, at Hawaii. He came and watched us play Washington, I think, and go 12-0 and 0 and go get our Sugar Bowl bid. But then after the Sugar Bowl, before the signing date, June left and took everybody to Hawaii. So now I had to go back into his house and you got to, you got to, you got to, you got to find, you got to use what you can use. Right. <laughs> so now I say to Mr. And Mrs. Banjo and their Nigerian family, dad, very, very, I mean, very proper, very strict, you know? Yeah. And I say to him, you know, sometimes it just works out the right way because now Chris has an opportunity to go to SMU which is only two and a half hours up the road. So he can be closer to you and you don't have to fly six, eight hours to Hawaii to see him play. Isn't that, and, and you know, it was like, okay. And he looked, <laughs> it was funny because he looked at me and he kind of rolled his eyes and is like, okay, you got me. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe that. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you one more story and then I'm going to get off recruiting because I don't want to sound like I, you know, it's always worked out the right way. I'm going to tell you about going into St. Augustine School in St. Augs in New Orleans. And the the defensive coordinator at St. Aug was a kid who had played for me in the CFL. And I'm in there. And, I mean, St. Aug got buku players every year. I mean, they, they're going to put 10 out every year. So I go in there, and my guy says – Jeff, I want you to look at this defensive back we got. And I said, all right, you know, can he play? He said, yeah, I think he's a really, really good player. And right now he's not getting any play by the SEC school. So he might be a kid that'll, you know, that because there's so much pressure on kids to commit as juniors. He yeah. said, if you if you like him, you know, you might be able to get him. So I was always up for a challenge. And so I said, all right. So I said, go get him. So he goes to in, at St. Augs, you got to wear a shirt and tie to school and the whole deal. And in walks this kid, kind of a not much bigger than me, really. I mean, um, maybe 5'10 and kind of got little twisted braids in his hair and his ties on kind of crooked like this. But he's got a twinkle in his eye and he's just got this. There's something about the kid, right, that makes you fall in love with them right away. As soon as you meet him, it's like this, this one's different, right? Because sometimes they'll come in, they'll slump in their chair and they won't pay attention. But he was like eager. So I grab the film. I go back to Dallas to the office and we have a big recruiting meeting where we show tape of everybody that you've seen. And should we offer him or not offer? Him? So I put my guy up there and it's it's New Orleans high school film is which means half the guys aren't on the film you can't see him he's a defensive back he returns one punt where you see him kind of run away from some guys and you know kind of go but there's not enough really on that tape that make you say we're going to take him because he's only five they asked me how big he was and i said five nine because you always if you air you always want to air on being a little short because then if you yeah. bring him on if you bring him on a visit and you tell him he was six one and he shows up and he's five ten, you're gonna get fired. <laughs> anyway, so they look, they look at him and they look at him again and they look at him again and they reject him. That player, Tyran Matthew, mm, yeah, 
<laughs> I mean, I <laughs> just twinkle in your eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one that got away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what a player! What a player! Yeah, that too. Sam, a, you, what, what a play! You're you're exactly right. But the most the, the and the guy you got to get on your show, and because his story is, it's something that Hollywood wouldn't write because they'd say nobody will ever believe this story. Yeah. At that same time, in New Orleans was a kid at McDonough 35, which is a which is a public inner city school. And Frank Daggs was his high school coach. And Frank's a real good friend of mine. So I went over there and 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 I watched the kid play. And then about, oh God, it must have been five, it was six years later. I get a call on my phone in Hamilton and it's my cell phone and it said Frank Daggs. And I'm like, Shit, I haven't talked to Frank in three years. Mm-hmm. So I said, Dagsy, what's up? And we, you know, we share pleasantries. And then he goes, Do you remember Delvin, bro? And I go, Hell yeah, I remember Delvin, bro. He's the best, he was the best player in Louisiana before he broke his neck. Mm-hmm. And I said, What's he doing now? He said he wants to play. I said, Frank, he Frank, he mm-hmm. broke his freaking neck. Like he. He was on the ground like it was one of the great uh, biggest tragedies in New Orleans. Right. His kid with all this bright future and all of it. He he's covering a kickoff and and breaks his neck. And I mean, bad, not like a broken bone. I'm talking about Mm. severe broken. And they said he'd never walk again. Remembered of Delvin Bro. And so he says, no, Jeff, I'm telling you, he he wants to play again. I said, Frank, he went to LSU, had offered him. He committed to LSU and they stayed with him. And he ended up going, played, was at LSU for five years, never played one down, never, never could pass a physical. And so he said, he's playing arena football. Well, in arena football, I don't even think you got to pass a physical. You just take them off the street and throw them together. Right. <laughs> and I said, you're kidding me. He said, no. And he says he's, he can play. He's fine. And I said, okay, if you send him to us, we'll work him out. Well, he, he comes in for the workout and we're at the college of San Mateo in California. And it's up on a, like on this the fields up on a, like a mountain. Right. And so we're doing one-on-ones and that poor receiver that went against him, bro went up and pressed him and, he ran him. I thought he was going to run him right off the ledge down. The, and we'd never seen the field. <laughs> and so like all of our personnel guys are going, who in the frick is this kid? Hmm. Right. And so we, we went through the process and finally found a, a you know, a surgeon that would clear him. And he ended up coming up and he was, the best player by far in the Canadian football league, best corner by far in the Canadian football league, and then got an opportunity to go back to the saints, the city where he grew up and he's an NFL all rookie player. And he wrote a book called unbroken and you guys, I'll get him on your podcast. Cause if you're a saints fan, this guy, we would love it. Next to next to Gleason. He might be the most inspirational saints guy ever. Mm. Yeah, I've got. Uh, I this isn't 
prep because well it is prep because I, I wrote his name down, but I've got his rookie card. There he is. Yeah, he's yeah, yeah. Uh, he's one of those players where you speak to, especially a lot of UK fans. They were so inspired by his story, and especially those guys coming in after the Super Bowl becoming Saints fans. Um, it's a real travesty that you know the, the, the mismanagement of his injuries when he was in New Orleans with his, his broken leg and stuff like that. Because I, it, what, I, I still think he could have been such a great player in the league if they hadn't mismanaged his industries injuries. But obviously that was a, a benefit for you, Jeff, in, in Hamilton when he when he came back. But what what a player! And he's he's a great guy as well. He follows me on Twitter, although he doesn't tweet that much or X. He's a, Delvin is a Delvin is a tremendous person, and hmm. he's coaching high school football now back in New Orleans and uh, raising a son. And I'm really really proud of him because you talk yeah. about courage. I mean, honest to God, and I think if you ever see the book, there he's got a scar from the base yeah, of I've his got, base I've got of the book. His, yeah, we both we both got it, Jeff. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, he's very, very. We'll get, it, we'll get him on your podcast, and I'm gonna tell you something. That will you, be, you guys, yeah. you guys will have a great time talking to him because he's one of my yeah. great. He's one of my favorites. And he does a lot in the community as well, doesn't he? In New Orleans, yeah. as well as high school football, he's always doing community stuff, which is which is great. And I think that's one of the things that we we like to see is when players come back to the city that they they give something back. And him and Taryn being in the city again, giving something back is is wonderful to see. Sons of sons of the city doing what they can for New Orleans. Yeah, you know, and, and there's so many tremendous athletes that have come out of New Orleans. OBJ's a New Orleans kid, you know, the Manning's yeah. New Orleans kids. And, you know, the the football in that city and in Louisiana in general is really some of the best in the country. And you look at the number of NFL players that come from Louisiana. It's, it's almost, you know, like, it's hard to believe that a, st a state as sparsely populated as yeah. – Louisiana is could produce that many. You you can understand it in California and Ohio and Florida and mm -hmm. you know Texas, the big population states. But Louisiana, shoot, I mean, yeah. there was a time when uh, when I was at Louisiana Tech that they talked about there's a highway that runs across North Louisiana, and Joe Ferguson, who played quarterback for the, one of the legendary Buffalo Bill quarterbacks, Terry Bradshaw. Uh, Joe, uh, Joe Ferguson. Um, oh man, what's the Kunas kid that played at Pittsburgh? There were about five quarterbacks in the NFL at the same time from this five miles off this little stretch of road. Terry Bradshaw was from North Louisiana as well. Yeah, he was Terry. Terry yeah. was a Louisiana Tech kid. Um, you know, just it, it is amazing how many guys mm. were from, you know. Dax from Louisiana as well, I think. Dak Prescott yeah. from North Louisiana. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I ended up going to see Dak as a high school kid when I was recruiting. And same deal, it was a little bit like Tyron. He didn't have a bunch of offers. And his high school coach said, Jeff, you know, his mother's going through cancer. And he does not want to go far away from home. Mm. And he's, he's from a really small town in North Louisiana. And what a really wonderful kid like when you when he walked in the room pure class kid like yes sir no sir look you right in the eye shake your hand the whole thing and we were we 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 thought we had a shot at it because dallas is only about four hours from his home but mississippi state came in in the end and the opportunity to play in the sec was just too mm -hmm. good to pass up mm -hmm. jeff before we i, I want to talk to you a bit about 
and I'm sure Mike does well, a bit about New Orleans in general and your, your time mm-hmm. you spent there. I just wanted, for our listeners, I just wanted to just go through the players who've played for the Saints that we know that you've you've coached, just to give them some kind of um, understanding. So we've talked about Delvin Rowe. Eric Harris, you had in, mm-hmm. uh, in Hamilton. Um, when you was at Louisiana Tech, you had Luke McCowan. Josh mm-hmm. Scooby was a kicker for the Saints for a, a little while in the off-season. Uh, Jerome Wisham was a left tackle who played for the New Orleans Voodoo, who you had with him, had with you. Um, you had Jake Ingram in Hawaii. He was with us for one game only. <laughs> but then SMU is where it really comes through. We've talked about Thomas Morstead, Chris Banjo, Sterling Moore you had there, um, yeah. Zach Lyon, Emmanuel Sanders. I know, obviously, you would, would work very closely with him as a wide receiver mm-hmm. coach. Zach Wood, Marcus Hunt. So many, yeah. so many players there. Um, so, you know, it, it, no wonder that we've talked about how you've just inter, intersected with, with the Saints. What was just, just one last thing. What was it like for you as a wide receiver coach at SMU having Emmanuel Sanders and Cole Beasley for a season? Well, you know, it was amazing because the, the best year we had, we had four kids. And now this is, this is really how it shows how, the recruiting services and all that stuff, you know, that's all good, but it's not the end all be all because Emmanuel Sanders, who has Super Bowl rings and had a tremendous NFL career, Cole Beasley, who played, I don't know, 10 years in the NFL, Aldrick Robinson, who was a great player in the NFL, uh, Darius Johnson, who was, I think he caught seven passes in a game as a rookie for the Atlanta Falcons. That was our four receivers one year. So, it's amazing what players can do to overcome bad coaching. Cause I was the receiver coach. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you've coached, you've coached a lot of positions and you've also been a GM and a director of player development and a head coach. The only yeah. area you haven't coached is O-line and QB to my knowledge, which is your, just before we move on, which is your favorite position to coach? Is it DBs and special teams or? Um, you know, I think it's really special teams because of the fact that it's the only position or it's the only coaching position other than the head coach where you get to work with the entire team. In the special teams meeting, the entire f- football team's in there. So it, it, it's really, really important that the special teams coach is in lockstep with the head coach because you're going to I'm going to spend more time with our football team than he will. And certainly more time than any assist, any other assistant will. So the messaging is absolutely critical. Um, and and then the other part of it is it gets you an opportunity to work with a cross section of the team, right? Everybody is going to play in some way, shape, or form on special teams. So that's the most that's the funnest one for me. I think the most technically demanding one um, is probably obviously quarterback which i did a little bit but um because there's so much information they go those guys got to process you know i remember guys we're going we're playing in the sugar bowl and this we were using the saints facility that week right and the saints were still playing because obviously that that game's on january 1st yeah and so we would go into the saints indoor facility after the saints practice right and because of the tight turnaround, you know, our buses would pull in and they would be finishing or supposed to be finishing work. And for three straight days, we did not get on the field for 15 minutes. We were 15 minutes late for three straight days 
because Drew Brees wouldn't get off the field rolling routes to the practice roster receivers. Mm. I have never seen a guy work like he worked. And I'm telling you guys, he is tiny for an NFL quarterback, right? He's probably 5'11 max. And it's a generous, generous when I give him six foot on the stats. Yeah, there, he's not six foot. No way he's if he's six foot, then I'm six one. And so <laughs> he but he would go out there with those practice roster guys and throw routes for 15 minutes by himself after practice. And nobody got on the field until Drew was done. And I, I remember just standing behind him and watching him and just how intense he was and how hard he worked. And if the ball was, let's say he was throwing a slant and he wanted the ball right here on the front shoulder of the receiver and the ball was back here, you he, you could see him get disgusted with himself. Mm. Right? And that kind of work ethic and that kind of professionalism to me is the reason why he became one of the greatest yeah. that ever played the game. I, I yeah, read we, Jeff Duncan's book. Sorry, go on, Mike. <laughs> no, I was going to say, we, um, Jeff, we did a pod with uh, uh, Jessica, who is the yoga instructor at the Saints. And she was talking, obviously, about all the things, you know, from a yoga point of view. And all, uh, she was saying that Drew literally has this ability to process information like nobody she has ever met before in her life, in every realm of his life. But not only process information, but be dedicated to everything. So, you know, if he was doing yoga, he would get it straight away. He'd know all of the breathing techniques almost instantly because his ability to process information, she was saying, is just off the scale. Um, so, yeah, it's it's no surprise. That, I mean, we all know as Saints fans that he was constantly on the field after practice sort of going through those routines. Um, yeah, just a, a, as you say, for somebody of that size... And stature, because he's not, you know, not only small, he's not a, he's not a, you know, <clears throat> he's not what you, or he's not, excuse me, let me say it this way. He's not what they want in mm. the NFL. And, you yeah, know, he right. wasn't, he wasn't what they wanted when he was coming out of high school and had to go to mm. Purdue to find a place to play. Because yeah. his high school down in, in, uh, just out of Austin, I mean, they're, they're a phenomenal program. Right. And everybody recruits in there and everybody said the same thing about him. Not big enough. Arms, not strong enough. Yeah. Well, sometimes I mean, I think we're seeing this with with, uh, you know, Brock Purdy. Sometimes yeah. it's more than just having arm strength and great feet. So I think I think Drew only got his chance because the starting QB got injured. And Drew, that's how Drew got into the team at high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was something that went viral last week, Jeff, and get your, your opinion. It was from a Saints fan that we follow called Alpa. Uh, she said, Brady was more accomplished, but Breeze was a better QB. What would you say about someone like Because I think a lot of people would, uh, Saints fans will argue that Drew is a, is a, a truer QB, but Brady's got the intangibles that you, you just can't, replicate on the field and they should Tom Brady. I, I, you know, I think this is where, um, in, in, if I'm honest, this is where it's, this is where I have to step away from those arguments because <laughs> I don't want to say anything that would 
like discredit either two of the greatest that yeah. ever because yeah. they were so different, right? Tom was the big lanky kid out of Michigan and Drew was the little short sawed off kid out of Purdue. And, you know, they, they both battled through a lot of things in their career. I mean, Drew was left for, you know, for dead. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. They said his, his elbow won't ever heal. You know, it's not going to, you know, he's too great an injury risk. What do you think the Dolphins think or thought? When, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, and so, and, and and Brady did did something in terms of winning championships that I don't think anybody's ever going to win. No, it's never going to be. That's never going to be replicated. I mean, it's, it was, it's something it, it about took, Tom Brady you cannot quantify. He just he was just just one. Yeah, and, and Brady people up around so that. But he so much of he, it is. Um, you know, the situation that you're in, the, you know, the, the, you know, I, I how, how, what if, what if that guy, you know, what if the safety takes a better angle in Minnesota? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Williams. Yep. You yeah, know what yeah, I'm yeah. talking about? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And Saints win another one. Right. Well, here's a point of here's a point of reference for you, Jeff, which is very, very painful for myself and Dan. Our first, myself and Dan didn't know each other um, when the you know the Saints no call game happened in the NFC Championship, but that was the that was mine and Dan's first game at the Dome was was that game. So you're you're right. It's like if the safety takes a different route, if that's called, yeah, everything could be it, different. Yeah. The one the one thing I would say about about Tom Brady is that you can't argue with anything to do with Tom Brady because he went somewhere else and did it again. And that, and, and, and yeah. see, I think, I think that's the same, you know, obviously Drew, and I'm not arguing for Drew. I'm just arguing for the truth. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah. You know, if Drew had better players around him in San Diego yeah. and had won, he went to another place and did it too. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, he was outstanding at two separate places with two completely different offenses, two completely different groups of personnel, two, you know, two different programs, the whole different. So that to me, whether you look at Tom or you look at Drew, that to me tells me they transcended yeah. the team that they were on. They elevated the team that they were on, and then they went somewhere else and did the same thing. Yeah, right. absolutely. And absolutely. that's you know, that's greatness. Yeah, they had that year, didn't they, where they couldn't split Drew and the Danny and Tomlinson. They they jointly awarded them one of the uh, end of year awards because uh, they just couldn't split them. They were so good. Jeff, what, when you go to New Orleans, where'd you like to hang out? Um, I love going to Jazz Fest. I love. Uh, St. Charles Avenue. I love uh, going in the quarter. Um, I love getting a a beta and a. a yes. <laughs> You're a friend of the pod forever now, Jeff. <laughs> I'm just telling you. I, I, you know what? I'm not like I, I. I'll go down there and every once in a while I'll have a beignet. I'm not a big beignet guy, but I do love po' boys. And mm. there is a place called Drago's. Right. Yeah. And if you go to Drago's for the barbecued oysters, Lord have mercy. 
<laughs> Absolutely. I've Absolutely. got a, uh, a Nick Sumi Dandy, Jeff, if you haven't tried it. This is a beer that my friends who live just on the North Shore have called Jucifer. Uh, it's from a local brewery in Covington called uh, Gnarly Barley. If you haven't tried that, give that a go. That is I'll yeah, be, I'll I'll be doing it. Jeff, just just taking it back, because obviously we want to touch on your sort of career in the UK, where obviously most people sort of know you, which is obviously on Sky Sports. Um, How did how did that all come about? Obviously, I'm assuming that your time in NFL Europe was probably part of um, part of the reason why you were there. Well, I'll be honest with you. People ask me, young guys, young coaches and young people that want to get into broadcasting, all that stuff come to me and, and you know, I, they they go, well, how, how, how did you do it? Well, you know, how, how can I get there? And I tell them, listen, my way ain't the way. I'm just telling you, like, <laughs> you know. Chairman Mao Tung had a five-year plan. I didn't have a five-minute plan. I didn't know what. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I'll tell you, in, in terms of broadcasting, um, I got fired in Winnipeg in 97, 8, I think it was. I can't even remember back now. But, um, and TSN, which is the Canadian version of ESPN, called me. Yeah and asked me if I would wanted to do some analyst work over the last part of the, the playoffs. Yeah. And I did it. And, you know, it was like, I never thought of, it was just, okay, I did it. Right. And then came up, came over here to work in NFL Europe, worked in NFL Europe and then got stationed as a part of the beginnings of the national player program, all right, yeah. the international pathway program. And I was living in London and working in London and Alistair Kirkwood, walked down to my office one day and he said, Jeff, uh, we got a problem. I said, what's up, Alistair? And he said, uh, uh, Darren Woodson, who was supposed to do the game that weekend down sky had called and couldn't get his wife was sick or something and something happened. He couldn't yeah. travel. And so he said, would you sit in at sky for Darren? And I said, sure, I'll do it. And like, and I, and I prepared, but I wasn't like I thought it was some audition. It was going to be, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I thought it was going to be fun to do one time, and that would be it, right? And that was back when Kevin and Nick yeah. Holland were on the show, mm-hmm. and so yeah. they welcomed me in, and we did the show. And I did not know this part of the story till six years later. That weekend, that you know, Sky at that time was a Fox was a Fox company, right? Yeah. Rupert Murdoch, who owns all of that whole thing, yeah, he would send guys around to do, you know, just to check on, you know, what the what the broadcasts look like, right? So this guy comes into his hotel room in London, puts he puts his feet up, and he's going through the Sky programming, and. Uh, then he has a meeting on Monday with the people at Sky. Well, I'm gone. I'm, I'm back doing my thing in NFL, you know, at NFL office yeah. in London. And he goes around the table and he's the henchman. I mean, he's the guy that comes in and says, change this, do that, you know, da, 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 da. Yeah. So he gets, to, he gets to American football and our producer is sitting there. And now he's shaking in his boots because he's a young guy. And this guy he's, thinks he's going to get ripped. But like everybody else around the table has gotten ripped. And he goes, uh, the guy said, I need to know 
who was that blonde guy you had on TV? And my my producer went Simon Peter on me. He goes, I don't, he, he's that, like, listen, he's just, <laughs> you'll never see him again. I promise. Like, Jeff, Jeff, did you have the long blonde hair and the earring at that point? No, I had the earring. But the guy said, no, get him back. I like that guy. No, oh, wow. And that started this, right? And so yeah, I've man. been like I've been so fortunate and so grateful for having the opportunity to do cuz to me the best thing about it guys is I get a chance to do like things like this hmm. to talk about the game, to tell stories, to to share my love of a game hmm. that and I'm going to get a little bit emotional but Football's given me everything I have, everything, yeah. right? And so we have a responsibility to the game mm. to, to give back, right? Yeah. And share what we have, what we've been given. Because I think if you don't do that, then you do, then you discredit a, a, a beautiful game. Absolutely. And I think, and also you're talking about, the, the one thing I would say is that what, what you've given back to this country as far as this game is, is concerned can't be underappreciated. I mean, my, obviously myself, Dan, thousands of people in the UK follow you on social media. And, and every single time you come over to the country, when we know that you're, you know, you, you're going to be a fixture in the country for a period of time. And obviously, even, even if we look now, so in the last couple of weeks, it's been Manchester, it's been Ireland, it's been... Glasgow. Um, by the way, on the Glasgow thing, I have to because she will never ever forgive me <laughs> if I don't. You met our friend Maggie in mm -hmm. Glasgow. She was a Saints fan. She had a picture with you. She, um, I don't know if she told you, but she, you're her favourite. She's got a mad crush on you. Um, but I, I actually, I was up here. Out more, Mike. I was up here. <laughs> she's got the crush on you, not me. Um, I was up in Edinburgh uh, this weekend and I was meeting Maggie and a group of um, of Saints friends and we were just having a, a watch of the game in Edinburgh. But but that that's the that's the wonderful thing for me is because, you know, every single time that you come over to the country, constantly you're giving back to us as UK fans. And I, I, I think that we cannot underappreciate how much you've given back to us. Well, I appreciate that, but I, you know what? I screwed that. I screwed that whole deal up too, because we had talked about I was going to try and get up to Edinburgh, right? Oh, wow. For for your deal, right? Yeah. And I I just couldn't I, with the sky schedule. I couldn't do it. Yeah. And yeah. I wanted to call her <laughs> while the while the thing was going on and ask her to put you on the phone. <laughs> I think I, she would have, Jeff. She would have fainted if that happened. There would have been no chance of me getting on the phone. Um, but yeah, but it, it's it's just that it's it, it's you know myself and Dan talk about it all the time. It's what what the community in the UK has given us is something that you know we we yeah again we can't underestimate it, can we, Dan? No, it's it's not just the wider NFL community in the UK. It's the sub communities of the individual fan bases as well. Which, you know, you 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 build relationships. Me and Mike met because of the Saints, and so many people I call good friends now met because of the Saints and the NFL. Um, it, and it is you know people 
I don't think people really appreciate what's been built in this country, Jeff. You know, yourself, Neil, people like Will Gavin, um, Ben Isaacs, Nat Coombs, all you guys who just put in great content out and making it accessible for people to build these communities is is wonderful. And it's it's a welcome break from like the tribalism that comes with soccer and stuff. I know, although I know you're a big Leeds fan, Jeff. Um, I am. <laughs> Yeah, hey, talking of tribalism. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you're exactly right. And this is one of the things that's so beautiful about our game. And one of the reasons why I love the London games more than any other games, because you you get the same vibe in London. Now, I haven't been to the German games, so I can only base it on what, I, what I've been to. In the London games, you see hats, shirts, jackets of every all 32 teams the only other place where you see that is at the super bowl yeah and the thing that we have in london that we you know that keeps it kind of special for us is it's not commercialized and and corporatized like the super bowl has become yeah. right mm. so it's still fans from all over that get together yeah. and it's the one time of the year that they you get to see see your team play or see a team play and get together with all your friends and make new friends and you know and i'm gonna say i'm gonna say this i had really wonderful evening this week uh went to dinner with henry hodson the the head of nfl international yeah. and what the uk fans have done since the first game came here is open the world to the NFL because Henry said to me, he said, he didn't, he's because I was, you know, there's going to be a game in Ireland pretty soon. Right. And I yeah. said, Henry, would you play, if you're going to play, would you think you'd play at Aviva, which is 49 or play at croak, which is 82. Because if you play at croak and you don't sell it out, it doesn't, you know, the optics of that is not good for your business. Right. And he wasn't bragging when he said this. He was just speaking factually. He said, you know, I think we're at the point now with the National Football League, we could go to any stadium in the world and sell it out. And that's, yeah. and yeah. that's, a, that's a credit to everybody. That's mm. you guys doing your podcast, everybody that buys a hat, everybody that buys a shirt, anybody that comes yeah. to, a, uh, you know, a, a one of our tour dates, anybody that anything. Because the NFL recognizes now this is a viable big market, right? Yeah. And I'm gonna tell you, you something, fellas. When when we first when when Alistair went over to New York and said he wanted a, a regular season game, because they'd had preseason games before. Yeah, you wanted a regular season game in London, you could hear the laughing all the way in London mm. from the New York offices, people saying that'll never work. Are you kidding me? And he he mortgaged his career yeah. on that game. And what a bet! What a bet! Yeah. What, a, what a bet! And aren't we lucky that he bet that he had absolutely? You know, yeah, that's that's a bet that's reverberated for hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people around around Europe. We see the amount of people that have applied for game tickets for Germany. I'm not be funny, Jeff. Like you said, if they play at Croke Park in Ireland and the Saints are there, me and Mike are going to be going and our friends yeah. are going to be going because you know, we want to see our teams. If the Saints play in Spain or France, we're going to go uh, because that, they, that European community, we've got friends in France who are part of the, like the Saints-France community. 
they're all about it. They all came to London. People will travel all across Europe because um, you but think it, of Europe, it's like the US, isn't it? It's a load of, but every, a load of states. But every year you get the college game in Dublin, sells out, never, ever not sold out. You know, this year I know that people in another group I'm in, those tickets were released. They've already bought tickets for it. So whether it's Madrid, which will probably happen further down the line with the Bernabeu being sort of refurbished in order to accommodate American football, whether it's going to be Paris, whether it's going to be Dublin, it doesn't matter where it is in Europe, they'll sell out. Yeah. I got to ask one question. I got to ask one question to you guys as, as Saints fans. Yeah. You know, the Florida Lee is so iconic, a brand, right? The black helmets, and, and I think I'm thinking about this because I see the black helmet behind you, Mike. The yeah. black helmets, and I didn't know what it was when I saw it for the first time with that, like, yeah, it looked like a bunch of, looked like a bunch of yeah. dots on the helmet, right? <laughs> yeah. And then they they got up close, and you could see that it was actually more more fleur de lis, I guess is the word. Yeah, yeah, M- multiple little fleur de lis. What do you um, guys? What's your take on that? No, not not really. I prefer I, the I one white. Okay. Yeah, I, we would because that's like a mat. That, that's my AK signed one, so that's that takes pride of place. But um, I prefer a matte black helmet. It doesn't. It doesn't really. And they keep wearing it with our color rush outfits. You have the white and the. It just doesn't work for me. At it all. goes better with a, the uh, throwback. <laughs> Absolutely. Old, you remember the old black black ones they wore, Jeff, with the the stripes around the, the sleeves. Um, it goes better with those than it does with the, the color rush. Alex, yeah. I, uh, I've got to mention to you, Jeff, just very quickly. Last year, you were in New Orleans for um, I think it was for a touchdown trips event yeah. in November. Yeah. Myself and a friend of mine, Alex, we were in the uh, we were in the mall, which was just by the Mississippi River, and we were walking. And you walked past us, and I said to my friend Alex, "I'm sure that's Jeff." <laughs> so it, it took us Why a little. Didn't you say hello. It, no, well, this well. is the point. It took it took us a couple of moments to register that it was you. So anyway, we turned around and started to follow you, just to sort of get a picture taken. And by the time we turned, you'd taken a left turn, and unbeknownst to us, you were heading into your hotel. So we were we were a little bit of a distance away from you, but we thought no, we, we'll we'll catch him up. We'll we'll get there eventually. You then went up an escalator, and then we thought no, no, we'll still carry on. You then walked down a corridor, and me and then you turned into your room, and me and Alex just felt like complete and utter stalkers that we were following <laughs> you to your room in a hotel. So we turned round and we left. Um, uh, yeah, that, so I nearly got the I nearly got the opportunity to meet you in New Orleans. So. That would well, be great. one day I hope we have a chance to go to New Orleans and I'll see you there. But you yeah. know what? You know, it was a big thrill, the biggest thrill. And I love going to Saints games, obviously, you know, because yeah. I'm Saints fan. But the biggest thrill of the weekend for me, and it was a lot of fun on the touchdown trips. They do a great job. But yeah, I'm at the airport the next morning. I'm flying back to Hawaii and I'm in the I'm in the security line and it's like 530 in the morning. Right. I'm in the security line. There's this little gray haired guy in front of me. Right. And he, and all of a sudden he turns, turns over his shoulder and it's Jim Mora. (laughs) And so I said, coach, come on, let's go have a cup of coffee. And we walked into the Starbucks in the airport and told stories and laughed for about 30 minutes. It was really, really cool. Really, really brilliant. That's a great, brilliant. 
Jeff, I think we've taken far too much of your time up, my friend. Um, yet again, from a personal point of view, I appreciate you immensely for coming on and, and sharing sharing your stories and a little bit about your life with us and, and people who listen to this podcast. So personally from me, I just want to say thank you very much, Jeff. No, it's my pleasure, guys. It's actually, I, I need to say thank you to you and, and you know, Saints fans and every fan of the NFL because you are the NFL. Really, you know, we learned that real quickly as players and coaches that the game wouldn't be the game if it wasn't for the fans. And, and uh, you, you know, sometimes players lose sight of that or coaches lose sight of that. And I think that's something for us all to remember is because we were all fans before we were anything else. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I echo that. Just before we pause the recording and sign off for Jeff, um, I just want to say for anyone listening, we are having a meetup on the 16th of December in London. So any Saints fans who are around, you are more than welcome to uh, to join us. We're going to be having some drinks in London and to see where the night goes. Um, for the select few, um, I'm going to be cooking some pork up at my house on the 17th for the Giants game. So if you get an invite, please please come to the cave <laughs> and we'll enjoy ourselves. Yeah. Wait a second now. What day is that meetup on the 16th? That's a Saturday. You better you better send me an invitation. You'll you'll, you'll be invited, Jeff. Oh, Do not worry to, about that, my friend. We'll be sent to <laughs> London. Uh, we, well, actually, it might might be something you're familiar with. We was thinking about starting in like someone like the Maple Leaf. So you know, I know you, you you're down with the Canadian culture, just like just like me. One of my favourite places in the world is uh, is Banff, actually. But we'll we'll talk about that not on this. On another podcast, I'd love, <laughs> love to go and connect connect with the Saints fans. The who, you know, yeah, who that's. We'll, we'll let you know, Jeff. When we get it all, yeah, we're definitely doing it. If you want to come along for a couple of drinks, we'd love to have you have, have a conversation. Yeah, um, be brilliant. That'd be amazing. My pleasure. My pleasure. So right. I'm gonna I'm gonna pause this one now. Uh, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this with Jeff. It's been an absolute pleasure. We can't yeah. thank you enough for uh, coming on, Jeff. And uh, big who that? <laughs> who that? Thanks, Jeff. Yeah.